Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. I've decided to change things up with the podcast a bit. Originally, for the past six, seven months, I've been doing three episodes a week, every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday or Saturday. But I've decided that I'm going to start focusing more on creating longer, more detailed episodes. These will come out every Saturday. Every Monday, I'll have an interview with somebody. And every Wednesday, I'll alternate between Canada year by year and battles in Canadian history. So I hope you enjoy the new format, which I'm hoping makes the podcast even better. Now, no company in Canada's history, not Eaton's, not Molson's, not Air Canada, has had a bigger impact on our history than the Hudson's Bay Company. It is a company that would occupy the lands that would one day be part of five different provinces. It would explore the West. It would bring settlers, and it would change the fabric of the continent. It was the first introduction many indigenous had to Europeans. The forts it created would become our cities, and its story is still going strong after 350 years. This episode comes out on May 2nd, the 350th anniversary of the founding of the company, and this episode is going to look at that long and interesting history. The year was 1670, and it had been a century and a half since Europeans had come to the shores of what would one day be Canada. The fur trade was big business, and it was about to form the basis of the country that would come to be two centuries later. I'm going to go now to a program called Our Native Land, which ran an episode on December 12, 1970, which talked about the beginning of the Hudson's Bay Company, which includes a song about the founding from the perspective of an Indigenous person. Well, I don't know if this is really how it got started, but we like to think that perhaps, and maybe it is true, that it all started because of a hat, uh, sort of a tall, dark, handsome type of hat, um comes from a rodent like a rat and actually it's what I'm trying to get to is the skin from a beaver a soft elegant gentleman's hat and uh, I guess even today and as was at that time it's the most it was what you call mod and it sort of won the social um, nod from people even before 1670 and that is of course the beaver hat <laughs> the Dutch and the Russians uh, had it first. And then, of course, the English merchants uh, cursed until they beat um, the band with skins from Rupert's Land. And, of course, that's what Canada used to be called before. Uh, it became, well, Canada, Rupert's Land. Today we'd call it mad, but uh, I guess it was the fad and honest-to-goodness reason why the bay... The Hudson Bay Company uh, was established in 1670 because of a hat, a lousy hat. <laughs> From the native with his bow to the trader with his beads. From the native with his land to the company with her deeds. Where came from King of England the title to our land. With the flicker of his wrist, which wave that mighty wand, he will transfer in impunity our country to his company. 
In that year, on May 2nd, King Charles would grant a charter to his cousin, Prince Rupert, and his associates to create the Hudson's Bay Company as a corporate identity. The original registered name was the Governor and Company of Adventurers of England Trading into Hudson's Bay. The name was very descriptive. The Governor was the chairman of the company, while the adventurers were those who owned stock as they were risking their money. So why was the Hudson's Bay part of the name so important? Well, under the Charter of 1670, the company was made the, and this is in the words of the Charter itself, true and absolute lords and proprietors of Rupert's Land. Rupert's Land was named for Prince Rupert, and it was the vast area of drainage into the Hudson's Bay Basin. This area consisted of 3.88 million square kilometers of northern and western Canada. Today, the area makes up roughly 40% of the country. Now in the mind of King Charles, the land was his to give because no Christian monarch had laid claim to any of it, which pretty much ignored the indigenous people who occupied the area for thousands of years. In exchange for the charter, the British monarch was entitled to two elk and two black beaver every time a monarch visited the continent. Now before I go any further into the history of the company, I need to go back. Two years, in fact. It was in 1668 that the English ship, the Nonsuch, sailed into Hudson's Bay in order to explore the potential of the bay for the fur trade. The men behind the venture purchased the ship for £298, which would be about £71,000 today. The ship set out on June 3, 1668, from England with a small crew. The ship would reach James Bay on September 29th of that same year, and they would establish Rupert House, which was technically the first Hudson's Bay Company fort, despite existing two years before the official establishment of the company. The crew would spend the winter in James Bay, and in the spring they traded with the Cree for beaver pelts. In October of 1669, they arrived back in England with a ship full of furs. And due to the high amount of profit from the venture, it was decided that a company should be formed to take advantage of the vast wealth of this new continent, and ensure that that wealth went to the English rather than the French. One year later, we had the Hudson's Bay Company. Now in 1968, the Hudson's Bay Company would commission a replica of the Nonsuch to honor the 300th anniversary of the company. This British movie tone film from 1968 relates the construction of the replica prior to the big anniversary. In a boatyard at Appledore in Devon, they're rebuilding the past. A full-scale replica of the Nonsuch, a catch built in 1650. Exactly 300 years ago this coming September, the Nonsuch arrived in Hudson's Bay to found the fortunes of the Hudson's Bay Company. Using seasoned timber and traditional 17th century craftsmanship, they'll reproduce the ship in every exact detail. Bob Pierce is making a trunnel for pinning the planks of the hull. He makes about 40 of these a day. Altogether, some 6,000 will be required. The 
Hudson's Bay Company intends to exhibit the Nonsuch in North American ports in a few years' time. Commemorating the 300th anniversary of the company, she's a tribute to the men who first began to trade with the remote northern reaches of Canada. Going back to the structure of the company, every year at the annual general court, the shareholders would elect a governor and a committee who would organize fur auctions and order the goods for trade, hire men, and arrange the shipping. A governor was also chosen to act on behalf of the company in the Hudson's Bay area. Within the Rupert's Land Territory, each trading post or factory had a chief factor who handled the day-to-day business of each fort. It was a highly efficient system that worked well for centuries. The first governor for the company was the previously mentioned Prince Rupert, who served in the position from 1670 to 1682. In all, there were 39 governors for the company, with most serving several years. The arrival of the company would begin to have an immediate impact on the indigenous people that they encountered. Since the trading was being done with the indigenous people, and without the use of British currency at their disposal, the fur traders with the Hudson's Bay Company used tokens. These tokens were the earliest currency of the fur trade, and usually made of wood, ivory, or shell. And they had an assigned value, and they were supplied to trappers and the indigenous in exchange for furs. These tokens could then be used at forts to buy goods and supplies. And the token's value was based on the value of an adult beaver pelt in prime condition, giving the token the name Made Beaver. For the indigenous people who lived in the territory, the establishment of the company would change the entire economics of the continent. During the fall and the winter, the indigenous would conduct trapping to gather beaver pelts. Now this was done during those months, because the beaver pelts were of the highest quality at that point. During the summer months, the indigenous would travel to trading posts and barter furs for metal tools, food, textiles, and guns. The point blanket that has become a symbol of the company was one such item, often traded for by the indigenous. By 1700, the blanket accounted for more than 60% of the trade with the indigenous people. The Cree that traded at the forts would conduct the annual trading sessions by passing a ceremonial pipe. The pipe would then be left at the fort to indicate that the Cree would return the following year. An entire economic system was set up using the Hudson's Bay Company, with indigenous traders serving as the middlemen for trappers from communities that were much farther inland. Many indigenous would abandon their traditional lifestyles and economy in favor of the fur trade. Some would move out of their traditional territory to search for fur-bearing animals and obtain a better position in the fur trade. Unfortunately, the addition of Europeans and the greater movement of people also helped spread diseases such as smallpox, which would devastate the indigenous communities. So the Hudson's Bay Company is established, and they quickly get to work setting up forts. The first fort was the previously mentioned Rupert House followed by Moose Factory in 1673 and Fort Albany in 1679. All three forts were established on James Bay. In 1684, York Factory would be established on the western shore of the bay, followed by Fort Severn, originally called Fort James, and Fort Churchill in 1689 and 1770, respectively. Now, interestingly, Fort Churchill is now Churchill, Manitoba, 
which many assume was named for Winston Churchill. In actuality, it was named for John Churchill, the first Duke of Marlborough, who was the governor of the company at the time. He was also the ancestor of Winston Churchill. The first three decades of the company were not easy ones. Not only were they venturing into new territory for Europeans, but the company had to deal with the fact that the French were constantly trying to take over their forts, and the last decade and a half of the century for the Hudson's Bay Company would be one defined by war. In March of 1686, the French sent a raiding party 1,300 kilometers to capture the company posts along James Bay. Traveling from Montreal, the trip would take 82 days and proved to be successful for the French. This expedition would capture Moose Factory, Rupert House, and Fort Albany, as well as a company ship. The Hudson's Bay Company would learn of the loss of Fort Albany in January of 1687, and they would appeal to the king. In 1688, the company sent five ships to Hudson's Bay. Two of the ships would sail to York Factory, the only remaining fort for the company, while another would travel to rebuild Rupert House, which would have been burned down by the French. The last two ships would travel to Fort Albany, where they were given instructions to re-establish the English fur trade. Technically, at this moment, the French and the English were at peace, so the men were given strict orders to not attack the French unless they attacked first. At Fort Albany, the Young and Churchill arrived in September of 1688 and landed 20 men, who set up a barricade quickly. Two weeks later, 85 English sailors began to build a fort, and three were shot by the French. With the truce now gone, the English could attack, but they did not, even though they had higher numbers. By the winter, their ships were frozen in the water, and their sailors were beginning to die of scurvy. A truce was agreed upon between the French and the English, but as soon as enough English had died of scurvy, the French attacked and captured 20 men who were out cutting wood. They then attacked the main fort that they were building. The next year, the French captured the frozen ships, sailed them to Fort Rupert, and captured a third British ship. Now by this point, the British and French were involved in King William's War. York Factory remained the only stronghold for the company in the area, but they would soon recover Fort Albany in 1693. At the time, the fort had only five French soldiers, who quickly abandoned it upon seeing the English force. Sadly, York Factory would fall to the French on October 14, 1694. The French were able to easily take the force thanks to the fact that the fort was mostly manned by traders, clerks, and laborers. York Factory was renamed Fort Bourbon, and with winter setting in, the French and their captives had to spend the winter months at the fort, waiting for the ice to break up. By spring, many of the French and the captives had died of scurvy. York Factory would be recovered by the company in 1695. Unfortunately, the company would not hold onto the fort for very long. On September 5, 1697, the Battle of Hudson's Bay would occur. Now this is still the largest battle in the history of the North American Arctic region, and it would result in the French once again taking York Factory. That same year, King William's War was over, and the French controlled all the forts that had once been owned by the Hudson's Bay Company, except for Fort Albany. It would remain this way until 1713, 
the same year that the War of Spanish Succession ended. As part of the treaty to end that war, French agreed to relinquish all claims to the English on the Hudson's Bay, making the forts, once again, under the governance of the Hudson's Bay Company. Under the treaty, all land that drained into the Hudson would be controlled by the British, while trading rights on the Mississippi River and St. Lawrence River were under the control of the French. With the war done, the company then set up Prince of Wales Fort in 1717, originally calling it the Churchill River Post before renaming it in 1719, and throughout the 1700s, the company would expand on the number of forts that it had, helping to grow the company to a sizable force within North America. During this same time, the East India Company was its main competitor, and that company controlled much of India during the same period. In order to have control over its competitor, the Hudson's Bay Company invested £10,000, or £2.5 million today, in the company. Now, During this century, prior to the American Revolutionary War, the Hudson's Bay Company would begin to establish inland forts, or houses, to get closer to the fur traders and make more of the fur trading market available. Henley House was established in 1743, but it would be 20 years before that fort would be finished. In 1740 and 1760, Split Lake and Nelson House were established, and Richmond Fort would be established in 1749. The following year, or at least thereabouts, Capusco River Fort and Chickney Creek Fort were established. During the 1770s, several houses or forts were established, including Hudson and Wepiscogamy. In 1774, Cumberland House would be established by Samuel Hearn, located in present-day Saskatchewan. It was in those years that we first begin to see the legendary explorers and fur traders who would map huge areas of the Canadian West, and I would like to look at some of them, because they had a large impact on the history of the company and Canada. Now, James Knight had joined the Hudson's Bay Company in 1676 as a carpenter, and he quickly advanced to the role of chief factor of Fort Albany. In 1697, he had amassed enough wealth to buy stock in the company, and when the French surrendered their forts in 1713, he was the one selected to receive their surrender. He would come across an indigenous woman named Thana Delthur, who was from the Chippewan nation, and she would serve as a guide and interpreter for the company for several years. She would also perk up his interest in the Northwest Passage, after telling him about a broad strait of water that ebbed and flowed in the north. She would also mention yellow metal and black pitch, gold and oil, that would eventually be found at the Athabasca tar sands. In 1718, he would organize an expedition and take the Albany and Discovery on a voyage in search of the gold and the passage. He would never be seen again. Half a century later, wreckage of his ship would be found near Rankin Inlet. Henry Kelsey would work for the Hudson's Bay Company for 40 years, and he would establish operations at York Fort and Fort Albany. His most notable contribution to our history, though, came when he made a two-year journey into the Canadian prairies in 1690. He became the first European to see the prairies, but also the first to see the bison. And his journey into the prairies went as far as present-day Saskatoon and Regina. Samuel Hearn would join the Hudson's Bay Company in 1766 and begin his first voyage to the west and the north 
1769, followed by a third voyage in 1771, and he would travel farther north on foot than any European before him, reaching the shores of the Arctic Ocean. He would eventually be in charge of Fort Prince of Wales in 1782 when it was attacked by the French, but we'll get to that later. David Thompson, a man who I will do an episode on one day, and who happens to be my favorite explorer, would join the company in 1784 as an apprentice at the age of 14 on a seven-year term. From 1786 to 1788, he would learn the Cree language and begin to travel through the area. On December 23, 1788, he would fracture his leg at Manchester House, and with his slow recovery he would learn mathematics, astronomy, and surveying. In 1790, with his apprenticeship ending, he asked the company for navigational instruments and a sextant. He would begin to survey the West for the company until 1796, when he left to join the Northwest Company. And his years after the Hudson's Bay Company would be when he would map roughly half of North America from the St. Lawrence to the Pacific. Isabella Gunn, also known as John Fubister, was a Scottish labourer who was employed by the Hudson's Bay Company beginning in 1806, during a time when the company policy forbidden women from being hired by the company. Isabella would disguise herself as a man and avoid detection for two years, becoming the first European woman to travel through Rupert's Land. She was discovered when on December 29, 1807, she knocked at the door of Alexander Henry in need of shelter. He would retire to his quarters, but soon heard Gunn screaming. It was then that he discovered that not only was Gunn a woman, but she was also pregnant and giving birth at that moment. Now despite proving herself the previous two years, she was only given work as a washerwoman at Fort Albany, and she eventually returned to England. Now there are more explorers that I could cover, but it would be very easy to be bogged down in biographies of employees rather than the company. So back to the Prince of Wales Fort. It was 1782, and the American Revolutionary War was being fought with the French aiding the revolutionaries and the British fighting against them. It was then that a French squadron would journey to the fort on secret orders, taking both it and York Factory with little resistance. At Prince of Wales Fort, the French took 7,500 beaver skins, 4,000 martin pelts, and 17,000 goose quills. These goods were worth 14,000 pounds, or several million pounds today. The men attempted to destroy the fort, but they were only able to destroy the gun mounts. They then traveled to York Factory, and upon its surrender, burned it to the ground. Now this would have long-lasting consequences for the Hudson's Bay Company. The Chippewan used to trade with the forts, and with the forts gone, and a smallpox epidemic raging, the indigenous did not have provisions, and roughly half would die. The company was unable to trade with the Chippewan for the next two seasons, which would drive the Chippewan to trade with fur traders in Montreal, who would soon set up the Northwest Company. The Northwest Company would soon become the main rival of the Hudson's Bay Company. Now, I won't go into incredible deep detail on the company and its relationship with the Hudson's Bay Company, because I did an extensive episode on the Northwest Company last year. Needless to say, the Northwest Company would have a huge impact on Hudson's Bay Company, not the least of which was taking some of their best surveyors and explorers like David Thompson. 
While the Hudson's Bay Company insisted that the indigenous come to their forts to trade, the traders with the Northwest Company would journey to the indigenous themselves. This allowed the Northwest Company to get far more furs than the Hudson's Bay Company, and by 1795, the HBC was only getting 20% of the furs that their rivals were getting. The company had to build more forts inland to compete with the new rival company. Typically, the pattern was that the Northwest Company would build a fort, and then the Hudson's Bay Company would build a fort adjacent to that fort. Many forts would be built during this period, including Fort Edmonton and Fort Calgary. Now as can be expected, the two companies would not get along, and it would culminate in the Pemmican War, fought in the 1810s, and would even result in the Battle of Seven Oaks on June 19, 1816, also called the Seven Oaks Massacre. It would occur in what would one day be Manitoba, and involved a group of 60 Métis under the authority of Cuthbert Grant, a Northwest Company employee. They would plunder various posts and stop near Fort Douglas, at Seven Oaks. Fort Douglas was a Hudson's Bay Company fort, and Robert Semple, the governor of the colony and the company's governor-in-chief in North America, came out with 25 soldiers to parley with the Métis. A fight would break out, and Semple and 20 of his men would be killed, while Grant lost one man. By 1821, in an effort to stop the conflict, the British government decreed that the Northwest Company would merge into the Hudson's Bay Company. Of the 175 posts and forts between the two companies, 68 were under the banner of the Hudson's Bay Company, and only 52 would be kept open in the name of efficiency. The closure of these forts would have a major impact on the indigenous people, who were reliant on trade with the Hudson's Bay Company. The merger would also result in the territory of the Hudson's Bay Company extending from Hudson's Bay in the east to the Arctic Ocean out to the Pacific Northwest and Fort Vancouver. Its trade area would cover 7.7 million square kilometers, and the company was also given an exclusive license to trade for 21 years. Also in 1821, the York boat would become the main mode of transportation for the company. The first York boat had been built in 1749, and its use would increase with time as the fur traders went farther and farther inland. It would get its name because all of the boats eventually ended up at York Factory. The boats were much better than the canoes since they could carry three tons, more than three times what a typical canoe could carry. Flat-bottomed, the boats could also easily journey along shallow rivers deep into the continent. With paddles that measured six meters long, manned by six to eight oarsmen, the boats could move quickly as well. But the journeys were far from easy. When the river was too shallow, the boat was pulled along, but if the river was too fast, then the boat was towed by the men from shore. Nonetheless, the boats were extremely versatile. When there was wind from behind, the York boat would have a square sail to catch the wind, and when out on open water, the boats had a mast. The boats went through a lot of abuse, and most would need to be replaced every three years. The boats also made portaging extremely difficult. Prior to the York boat, canoes could be loaded up and hauled by the men as they walked through the land to get to the next river access point or to bypass rapids. Now while the York boat's heavy structure made it easier in rougher water, it still had to be portaged sometimes. 
Since it was so heavy, the crew would have to cut a large path through the bush and then put the boat on poplar rollers and roll the boat over land. And for those who made up a crew of a York boat, it was not always an easy life. As Sir John Franklin would relate, the York boat life was unending toil broken only by the terror of storms. The York boat would fade from existence as steamships were used more by the company. It was also during this time in the 1820s that the company would come under the guidance of a new man, Sir George Simpson, who would watch over the company during its greatest period from 1826 to 1850. Now he's such an important figure in the history of the Hudson's Bay Company that we need to take a trip over to his life. Born in Scotland, Simpson would begin working with the Hudson's Bay Company in 1812, and over the course of his career with the company, he would become known for being an excellent traveler, able administrator, and someone whose knowledge of the fur trade was never equaled. In 1820, he would take charge of the Hudson's Bay Company, and following the merger with the Northwest Company, he would become the governor of the Northern Department, followed five years later as the governor of both the Northern and Southern Territory. In 1828, he would take an overland trip to the Pacific with his dog, mistress, and personal piper, journeying from York Factory. The canoe trip, which would amount to 8,000 kilometers in all, would be the longest North American canoe journey ever recorded in one season. In 1841, he would conduct what many consider the first circumnavigation of the world by land, and five years later, he would negotiate the Oregon Treaty to establish the Oregon boundary with the Americans. His work in building administration in the West would also help with the eventual Confederation of Canada, and he would be instrumental in building the Hudson's Bay Company up after its war with the Northwest Company and he ensured that employees would benefit with the company having a monopoly in the fur trade. Under Simpson, chief factors would get two shares in the company, while chief traders would get one share. Clerks would receive 75 to 100 pounds in pay, while an apprentice clerk received 25 to 27 pounds. The postmaster would receive 40 pounds to 75 pounds, while guides and interpreters were paid 30 to 45 pounds. As for laborers, tradesmen, and boatmen, the pay was 16 to 40 pounds per year. Thanks to Simpson, the company would have total control of trading operations in the Pacific Northwest throughout the 1820s and 1830s. With this immense stranglehold in the area, the company pretty much forbade any settlement in various regions to ensure that things would not change. In 1834, the company would establish Fort Boise, in future Idaho, to compete with Fort Hall, which the Americans owned. Three years later, the company bought Fort Hall, and since it was on the Oregon Trail, they displayed the abandoned wagons of discouraged settlers as a way to keep others from wanting to continue west along the trail. During the 1820s and 1830s, Hudson's Bay Company trappers would begin to make their way down to northern California, exploring the area and reaching as far as the San Francisco Bay and even operating a trading post there. Several other changes would come to the company during those two decades. In 1820, the Hudson's Bay Company issued its own paper money in pounds sterling. These were printed in London and issued out of York Factory, Fort Garry, and the Red River Colony. And the Hudson's Bay Company notes would be used for 50 years until 1870. 
The company also began to build steamships, beginning in 1835 with the Beaver. Over the course of the next 150 years, 12 steamers would be used by the company, with the distributor being the last to operate when it was sold in 1948. The Beaver, for its part, was used by the company to serve the trading posts between the Columbia River and what would one day be Alaska. The steamer would be instrumental in helping set up various communities on Vancouver Island, including Nanaimo and Fort Victoria, and she would eventually be sold in 1874. Now in 1843, when the first wagon train reached Oregon, the monopoly on the area by the company ended. Within a few years, thousands of people began to flood into the Oregon area, and in 1846 the United States took full authority south of the 49th parallel. Ironically, John McLuhan had been the chief factor of the Columbia District and had been one to discourage any settlement, but after 1846, he welcomed settlers, and today he's considered the father of Oregon. The 1840s would see the monopoly ending, thanks to a man by the name of Guermo Sire in 1849. Sire, a Métis trapper, was accused of illegal trading in furs. He was brought to trial before a jury of Hudson's Bay Company officials and supporters. And during the trial, a crowd led by the father of Louis Riel, Louis Riel Sr., gathered outside the courtroom. Guermo would be found guilty of illegal trade and evading the Hudson's Bay Company monopoly. But no finer punishment was put against him. Outside the court, the yelling of trade is free could be heard. And slowly from this point, the Métis began to loosen the company hold on the courts, and with that came less enforcement of the monopoly in the Red River area. The Palliser Expedition also launched in 1857, running for three years until 1860, and it was led by Captain John Palliser. I did a podcast episode about this a few weeks ago, and its impact on showing the West as a place where agriculture, rather than fur trading, would push settlers out to the future areas of Alberta and Saskatchewan, and would topple the myth put forward by the Hudson's Bay Company that the West was not suitable for agriculture. By the 1860s, the company was moving out of focusing solely on the fur trade and more into the economic development of the West. In 1863, the International Financial Society would buy the controlling interest in the company, which would begin to shift the company's focus. In 1869, two years after Canada's Confederation, the company rejected the $10 million offer from the Americans for Rupert's Land. Today, that deal would have been worth $189.8 million, and the offer came just two years after the Americans had bought Alaska from the Russians. Instead, the company returned Rupert's Land to the British, and the British government then gave the land to Canada, while also giving the new country £300,000 to compensate the Hudson's Bay Company. In the deal, the company received 5% of the fertile land to be opened up for settlement. In 1870, the deed of surrender came into force. This territory that had once been Rupert's land would become the Northwest Territories. And on the same day that the deed came into force, July 15, 1870, the province of Manitoba would be admitted into Confederation. Now by this point, the company had been moving into a more retail experience in Canada. In 1857, the company would open its first sales shop in Fort Langley, with more sales shops following in 1859 in Victoria, 
1881 in Winnipeg, 1884 in Calgary, 1887 in Vancouver, 1890 in Edmonton, and 1898 in Yorkton. By 1900, the company was 230 years old and was continuing to go through changes. With competition from companies such as Eaton's, the Hudson's Bay Company opened its first department store in Calgary in 1913, followed by stores in Edmonton, Vancouver, Victoria, Saskatoon, and Winnipeg. Now the First World War would delay some of the changes the company had planned, but once the war was over, the company began to diversify its operations even more, including by getting into the oil business. The Hudson's Bay Oil and Gas Company would be founded in 1926, and the company would expand this operation throughout the 1940s and 1950s, and by 1967, the company was the sixth largest Canadian oil producer, but the company would sell its oil business and operations in 1982. In 1919, the company would commission a film called The Romance of the Far Fur Country to commemorate the 250th anniversary of the company. The film, which can be considered the first full-length documentary in history, consisted of two cameramen from New York City going up to the Arctic Circle and filming the fur trade and the Inuit people over the course of nine months, producing 75,000 feet of film. The techniques used in that film, released in 1920, would actually influence the documentary Nanook of the North in 1922, which itself claims to be the first documentary. I spoke with Mark Terry of York University about the documentary, which he wrote about in his book, The Geodoc, Geomedia, Documentary Film, and Social Change. But, uh, but yeah, Nanook of the North always got uh, all the press about being the first documentary ever made, and, uh, and that's been reinforced by scholarship throughout the years. But um, the reality was there was a, a previous feature-length documentary, almost about the same subject, um, made, I think, three years before, and that was called The Romance of the Far Fur Country. And um, it was made to commemorate, believe it or not, the 250th anniversary of the Hudson's Bay Company at that time. <laughs> Does it still exist? Right? Well, the Hudson's Bay Company does exist. Oh, I know that. I mean, the, uh, the, uh, the documentary. Oh, yeah, yeah, the documentary. It's been lovingly restored. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, by um, a group out of Winnipeg. And um, they put it together. And you can see uh, parts of it on YouTube. But hmm. if I think if you want to see the entire film, you can... Um, uh, just write um, the guys that restored it and get a copy. Hmm. But yeah, it's fascinating because it's two hours long and um, it travels across Canada showing the various outposts of the Hudson's Bay Company. And um, and even even more so, they had subtitles in, um, in the Inuit language. <laughs> yeah, which is very impressive. That really is, yeah. Yeah, and, um, and Robert Flaherty, saw this film and talked to the filmmaker and got tips and was actually inspired to do his own Nanook of the North after seeing this original film. <laughs> Beginning in the 1960s, the company started to expand its retail operations, and in 1965, the department stores were rebranded as The Bay. In this story from CBC in 1968, the changing role of The Bay is looked at through a visit to Rupert's house, the oldest of the HBC stores. I'm talking with Marshall Campion, who is the 
what used to be called factor here, but he tells me now they're called store managers. Everything's getting very modern. Are there any other changes that you've noticed in the nearly 20 years you've been with the Bay? Uh, yeah, uh, when I first came with the Bay in uh, 51, uh, take airplane uh, uh, communication that there was, uh, you might see one plane a month, maybe not even, but now we got three planes a week. We get mail three times a week. What about the trade? Uh, when you first started, was there still a fairly large fur trade? Yes, there was. Uh, well, I started in the Arctic. It was mostly white foxes in them days. And uh, then I moved down to uh, Hudson's Bay and James Bay. Uh, here, we, uh, the, uh, it's mostly beaver trapped, and it's run by the government. They, uh, the Indians bring their, fur, their beaver into me, and I tag them put their names on the tags and bail them up and send them down to uh, Quebec, to the Quebec government, and they sell them at auction. And uh, then they pay the Indians uh, when they get them sold on auction. In the old days, I understand, they, they paid them sort of in kind with stores from the Hudson's Bay. You don't do that anymore, do you? When I first came in the Arctic, we still used the uh, tokens for uh, the Eskimos, but uh, the Indians are for long as I can remember, I've always used cash. Now, what about the the sort of role of the Hudson's Bay Company now? In a way, the Hudson's Bay Company opened the north and for a long time was sort of the only authority, I suppose, or government, if you want to use that word, that there was in the north, and the factor was kind of the the everything to the town, I suppose, justice of the peace and settled all the problems and so on. Do you still have to do this kind of thing? Oh, no, that's all. Uh, we leave it all to the government now. We just more or less manage the store. In 1970, on the 300th anniversary of the company, the headquarters were moved from England to Canada. Now this was done thanks to a new charter issued by Queen Elizabeth II, who revoked most of the original provisions of the 1670 charter and transferred the company formally from England to Canada. At the time, its headquarters would be in Winnipeg before moving to Toronto. In 1978, Zellers attempted to buy the Hudson's Bay Company but the company turned the tables and bought Zellers instead. Through the next decade and a bit, the company continued to buy other brands including Zellers and Fields, the Simpsons department stores, and Towers department stores. One of the biggest changes for the company, considering its history and how it was founded, came in 1991 when it was announced that the company would stop retailing fur. This story from 1991 outlines the big news. Well, it's the end of an era in Canada. After 320 years, the historic Hudson's Bay Company is getting out of the fur trade altogether. Kevin Newman has the story. The Hudson's Bay Company founded Edmonton and just about every other city in the West in its quest for fur. But the centuries-old relationship with fur is ending. These are some of the last the Bay will sell. Not because of anti-fur protests, the company says, but because no one is buying. Whether it's fashion-driven or otherwise, uh, it's certainly not the, the business it used to be a decade ago. But the powerful anti-fur lobby is claiming victory over the Bay's decision. Proof, it says, that a campaign to change Canadians' opinions about fur has worked. Oh, well, we already knew it was going to work because of uh, the way Europe has gone and the United States as well. It was just a matter of time because Canadians are more conservative. The Hudson's Bay Company was created to buy beaver pelts from Canada's natives and ship them to market in Europe. The relationship endured into this century, with natives trading their pelts for food and dry goods at remote Hudson's Bay outlets. 
Author Peter C. Newman has written about the Bay's place in Canada's history. It's the oldest company in the world, certainly. And for them to withdraw from the last vestige of, of their genesis of the beginning, uh, I find a little sad because they're now just another department store. It's also a loss for more than 100,000 Canadians like Bill Abercrombie who still make a living from the fur trade. Good catch, though. Never would have known what hit him. The Hudson's Bay Company was Canada's largest fur retailer, and Abercrombie says an important symbol of the trade. Yeah, sure, it hurts. It, that makes it hard for a trapper to remain optimistic to see 300 years of tradition go down the drain. Others may disagree, but after three centuries, one of the original Canadian partnerships is coming to an end. Kevin Newman, CBC News, Edmonton. In 1997, the company reopened its fur salons, based on the demand from its consumers. And as the company entered into the 21st century, it was clear that the times were changing for the retail experience, thanks to the internet and online shopping. In 2008, Anita Zucker would become the first female governor of the company in its history, after she succeeded Jerry Zucker, her husband, and she would serve for a year. In 2011, the company began to downsize its Zeller's chain of stores, with the last of the stores closing in 2020. In 2018, it was announced that several Bay stores were closing to put the company on more solid financial footing. In March of 2020, the company would be delisted from the Toronto Stock Exchange, and the company would become a private company after a vote by its stakeholders. Now the company has come a long way from its beginnings 350 years ago, and it has changed many times. While it may not be the same company it was three centuries ago, the impact of the Hudson's Bay Company on our country's history is immense, and without the Hudson's Bay Company, it's likely Canada as we know it would not exist. Information comes from the Government of Manitoba, the Canadian Encyclopedia, HBC Heritage, Wikipedia, CBC, First Peoples of Canada, and Encyclopedia Britannica. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Canadian History X, and if you did, please give a rating and review. You can support the podcast through Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also email me at craig at CanadaX.com, and you can visit my website and find hundreds of articles on Canada's history by going to CanadaX.com. Thanks, and we'll see you again next time.